0: Well, welcome to the first episode of Jazz in the Public Domain. On uh, January 1st, 2024, the recordings of 1923 entered the public domain. and 1923 was a particularly significant year of great recordings, and uh, we get to listen to those. So this episode, we uh, start with Bessie Smith, and we go on to... Uh, King Oliver, and we wrap it up with Jelly Roll Morton, all of whom uh, discovered the recording studio in 1923, a uh, signal year. Um, We're going to be sampling the recordings as collected by David W. Niven and uh, his collection he put on tape and he uh, gave some commentary for each of his records. These were his records that he collected from the 1920s himself. He started his collection in 1925, put these on tape. And the thing about David W. Niven, I'm gonna read to you from his memoir, is an introduction to these tape and the collection. And the collection is uh, located on the internet archive. So he said, my 20 year old cousin introduced me to jazz when I was 10. It was a 10 inch 78 RPM OK recording of my heart made in Chicago on November 12th, 1925 by Louis Armstrong's Hot Five with Kid Ori at trombone, Johnny Dodd's clarinet, Lil Armstrong piano, and Johnny St. Cyr banjo. On the reverse was cornet chop suey. My hip cousin then advised me to get some recordings By another cornetist, Bix Beiderbeck, who started recording for OK the same year, 1925. I dug again into my newspaper route money, 35 cents, and bought the October 5th, 1927 recording of All the Jazz Band Ball, rather At the Jazz Band Ball, backed by Jazz Me Blues by Bix and his gang. Bix on cornet, Bill Rank trombone, Don Murray clarinet, Adrian Rolini bass sax, Frank Signorelli piano, and Chauncey Morehouse drums. Over the next few years, I acquired every record Bix made prior to his early death in 1931. Encouraged by my interest in jazz recordings, my cousin came up with a third suggestion for my collection, Duke Ellington. One year prior to Lewis's and Bix's, first recording, Duke and his six-piece band, The Washingtonians, with Bubba Miley cornet, Charlie Irvis Trombone, Otto Hardwick Sax, Fred Guy Banjo, Sonny Greer Drums, and Duke Piano, had their initial commercial recording date in November 1924. I became the proud owner of every recording up to the start of World War II, and some 75% of his recordings until his death in 1974, some 180 hours of the recorded Duke Ellington. Throughout the 10 years prior to World War II, during my high school and college years, my 78 RPM 10 inch, followed by 33 and a third RPM LP collection, grew to the thousands. All the big names of jazz, along with lesser legends, were included. And I found myself with a first class treasure of early jazz music. But I also found that such a collection was a first-class burden when I was moving through the post-war years with family, financial, and other fidelity responsibilities taking priority. I had always hoped that maybe at least one of my kids would show an interest in my collection. So I began making tapes that could include a chronological compilation of my collection, along with commentary, date and place of recording, personnel, soloists, etc. The main reason for doing this rather major project was to put my collection into some kind of compendium form that would attract my children to the music that had been of such significance in my life. My collection amounted to over 10,000 hours of tapes. No two people will agree with my selection of legends. I decided to choose from the years prior to the bebop period i.e. before Gillespie, Bird, Monk, and Miles. And the archivist's notes of Kevin J. Powers, Mr. Powers states, it appears based on Mr. Niven's audio commentaries referencing certain artists still being alive at the time of the commentaries. For example, Buck Clayton, who passed away in 1991, is living and Johnny Hodge's salary is compared to 1993 dollars That he put The tape compilation together during a period of time beginning somewhere in the mid to late 1980s and ending somewhere in the early 1990s. In my conversations with Mr. Niven, he has indicated that the materials in this selection of early jazz legends only represents about 40 to 50% of what he once had in his jazz record collection. Other legends such as Benny Moten and many, many others were in his collection and did not make the cut for these tapes. We're going to listen to three recordings of Bessie Smith's in 1923 and as introduced by David W. Niven on his recordings.
1: Bessie Smith was known as the queen of the blues. Bessie was a queen, said Ruby Walker, her niece. I mean, the people looked up to her and worshipped her like she was a queen. You know, she would walk into a room or out on a stage, and people couldn't help but notice her. She was that kind of woman, a strong, beautiful woman with a personality as big as a house. No hanging around in the corner, not Bessie. She'd let you know she was there, and she didn't have to open her mouth to do it. Frank Shipman, who owned Harlem's Lafayette and Apollo Theatres when Bessie was a headliner there, said, I don't ever remember any artist in my long, long years who could evoke the response from her listeners that Bessie Smith did. Cy Oliver remembered seeing Bessie hypnotize and walk a member of the audience during a Baltimore engagement. That man was completely mesmerized by Bessie's singing, and as she slowly walked backwards, looking straight at him, he followed. Judy Singleton, who played with Bessie, likened her performances to sermons. She could do that kind of thing, he said, because her songs were like church hymns. They kind of grabbed you tight. Bessie's absorbing style influenced generations of vocalists that followed, from Billie Holiday to Janis Joplin. Bessie was born on April 15, probably in 1894, the daughter of William and Laura Smith. Her father was a laborer and part-time Baptist preacher, who died before Bessie was old enough to remember him. And before she was ten, she had also lost her mother and a brother. To Viola, the oldest sister, whom a stranger in the night had left carrying a baby girl of her own, fell the burden of raising and carrying for the remaining family. Their home was a one-room wooden shack on Child Street in the Blue Goose Hollow section of Chattanooga, Tennessee. Bessie would later describe it as a ramshackle cabin where rats outnumbered the smith family bitter and old beyond her years viola worked hard taking in laundry which she boiled atop an outdoor coal stove and when she wasn't washing she was cooking clarence the oldest male member of the family did his best to help by taking whatever odd jobs he could find but he had the not-uncommon urge to explore the world beyond Chattanooga. In 1904, when a small traveling troupe came to town and presented Clarence with his first opportunity to leave home, he seized it. Always the clown, Clarence had long shown an interest in theater and his enthusiasm had rubbed off on Bessie, who was only nine when she entered the Ivory Theater's weekly amateur contest. Seeing her favorite brother leave town as master of ceremonies made her all the more determined to one day follow his footsteps. Bessie probably wouldn't have been in the show business if it hadn't been for Clarence. Bessie attended the West Main Street School, but she often spent her late afternoons and weekends performing in the streets, accompanied on guitar by another brother, Andrew. They were most frequently seen around Ninth Street, a stretch along which the city's black nightlife centered, but sometimes they stayed in their own neighborhood in front of the White Elephant Saloon on 13th and Elm. The saloon's patrons were good to the Smith children, their generosity heightened by the establishment's offerings. In 1912, Clarence returned to Chattanooga with the Moses Stokes Company to put on a few shows at a a Ninth Street storefront theater. He arranged to have the troupe's managers, Lonnie and Cora Fisher, give Bessie an audition, which she passed. Thus it was that Bessie Smith launched her professional career as a dancer with the Moses Stokes troupe, and not not as a singer. She traveled with such popular troops as Pete Worley's Florida Blossoms and the Silas Green Show, most often as a chorus girl. And she turned more and more to singing. Her reputation grew on the Southern Circuit, and Bessie began moving north. By 1921, she was a veteran trooper. She took up residence in Philadelphia and around that. It was at this time that, principally because of Mamie Smith's recording of Crazy Blues, began the craze for race records, which record companies big and small formed so-called race record divisions and began scrambling to sign up blues singing ladies with musicians like Louis Armstrong, King Oliver, James P. Johnson, and Johnny Dodds supplying the backgrounds. Since no earlier recordings have been turned up, there is every reason to believe that Bessie's February 16, 1923 Columbia session was her first, and one must wonder why someone didn't whisk her into a studio sooner. While living in Philadelphia and performing nightly at Horan's Cabaret, Bessie met a night watchman named Jack G., whom she later married. Jack G. later, in 1971, told how a fellow named Charlie Carson had a little record shop on South Street, and he used to hang out at Horan's cabaret he loved to hear Bessie sing and he used to tell how she was better than any of the blues singers that's why he told Clarence Williams to take her to Columbia Records so Clarence Williams took her to the Columbia studio where he accompanied her in a performance of two songs neither being determined as releasable. She clearly overcame her fright by the following day when she again faced the ominous recording horn and successfully completed downhearted blues and Gulf Coast blues. And this initial release became an overwhelming success. to see how well this first release would do. He signed Bessie to a one-year contract calling for a minimum of 12 usable sides and had her back in the studio for four sessions in April. On April the 11th, 1923, Bessie recorded with her Down Home Trio Ernest Elliott, clarinet, Clarence Williams, piano, Buddy Christian, banjo. Here is Aggravatin' Papa.
0: Jesse Smith from the David W. Niven Collection, and now we're going to turn to King Oliver, also recording in 1923 from the David W. Niven Collection, and we will hear his introduction to these pieces.
1: Cornetist King Oliver, May the 11th in Louisiana. His mother was a cook. Young Oliver went to... New Orleans. As a result of a childhood accident, he became blind in one eye. He first took up the trombone and later the cornet and joined a brass band. And between 1912 and 1914, he was with Perone's Olympia Band. By 1915, he was a leader of his own group with Sidney Boucher on clarinet. Oliver also played with Kid Ori's group, And it was Orrie who gave him the nickname of King. Louis Armstrong, 15 years younger than Oliver, became very attached to the King. Early in 1918, Oliver migrated to Chicago and Kid Ori asked Louis Armstrong to replace him. Soon Oliver had his own band at the Royal Garden Cafe. In 1922, Oliver sent for Louis Armstrong to join his band and it became known as the Creole Jazz Band. They were made for the Jeannette label in Richmond, Indiana, which, of course, was the scene of so many of the early jazz recordings. The date was April the 6th, 1923. The Creole Jazz Band had King Oliver and Louis Armstrong on cornet, Henri Dutry on... Trombone, Johnny Dodds, clarinet, Lil Hardin, piano, Bill Johnson, banjo, and Baby Dodds on drums. Here is Just Gone. must be remembered that this early Dixieland music was an ensemble effort. There were very few, if any, solos. The solos came only when there were breaks, and with the Creole Jazz Band, these breaks were taken by the two cornets, King Oliver and Louis. It wasn't until quite a bit later that solos took place, and the music was generally referred to as Chicago-style. The second tune recorded at this April 6, 1923 recording session at Jeannette Records by the Creole Jazz Band was Canal Street Blues. I'm engaging Johnny Dodd's clarinet and the Wah Wah cornet by King Oliver displaying his muted technique. April the 6th, 1923 is I'm going away. piano with Baby Dodds on the wood blocks. the reason there was so much woodblock playing on recordings early on in the 20's was that the full drum set was not allowed into the recording studio because the recording mechanism wouldn't take the vibrations that a full set put forth You hear a lot of choke, cymbal work, and woodblock work until about 1927. Next we have King Oliver and his Creole jazz band with Chimes Blues. This is believed to be Louis Armstrong's first recorded solo. other bird The break was hot stuff. It was the primary way for the instrumentalists to express their own musical ideas. That tune was a good demonstration of the Creole jazz band style of breaks in 1923. Now, next comes Dippermouth Blues. This will be familiar. It later became known as Sugarfoot Stomp and was recorded by just about every big band in the land during the 1930s. The King Oliver solo on this has been rendered note for note by most all of the great jazz trumpeters and in fact has become an integral part of the number itself. (small) i <small> Johnson doing the vocal break. Next, we have a Jelly Roll Morton composition, Froggy Moore. Oliver plays the lead, and then a brash young Louis Armstrong takes over after Johnny Dodd's modulation. composition entitled Snake Rag, King Oliver and Louis Armstrong on cornet, Honore Dutri on trombone, Johnny Dodd's clarinet, Lil Harden on piano, Bill Johnson banjo, and Baby Dodds on drums. April the 6th, 1923. <laughs>
0: Oh, my God. was King Oliver from 1923 and now to complete our uh, rotation here, Jelly Roll Morton from 1923 and with David W. Niven introducing these pieces.
1: A great deal has been written and said about Jelly Roll Morton, but much of it is vague, contradictory, or just plain wrong. Morton's most enthusiastic chronicler was Morton himself. He was also the least accurate. One afternoon in September 1940, Ferdinand Jellyroll Morton attended a rehearsal in a room above a Harlem pool hall of a new band led by Hot Lips Page. Big bands were in style, and the occasion attracted a number of outsiders, including some reporters. Morton habitue of the Downstairs Pool Hall may have dropped by to hear what Page was up to, but he also loved to talk, especially about himself, and particularly to reporters. George Hofer, a correspondent for Downbeat magazine, was there to cover the rehearsal, but his item on the Page band was reduced virtually to an, an aside by Morton's deliberately sensational statements. Quotes, I've been robbed of three million dollars, He told Hofer, everyone today is playing my stuff, and I don't even get credit. As Page was preparing to put his 16-piece orchestra through its paces, Morton asked the trumpeter what kind of band he was starting. Kansas City style, replied Hot Lips. Kansas City style, Chicago style, New Orleans style, Morton retorted loudly. Hell, they're all jelly roll style. Then he unburdened himself to Hofer, stretching accuracy just enough to assure being quoted. I am a busy man now, and I have to spend most of my time dealing with attorneys, but I am not too busy to get around and hear jazz that I myself introduced 25 years ago, before most of the kids were even born. All this jazz I hear today is my own stuff, and if I had been paid rightfully for my own work, I would now have $3 million more than I have now. Morton was probably partly right. He once said, I invented jazz in the year 1902, and he was ridiculed for years for saying it. But what he meant, his friend clarinetist Albert Nicholas explained, was he created a style of jazz, and he did. Morton is, in fact, now recognized as the first great creator of form in jazz, probably the first real jazz composer and arranger and a pioneer along with Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington. The Duke didn't care much for Morton. He once (coughs) said he played piano like one of those high school teachers in Washington. As a matter of fact, high school teachers played piano better jazz. However, the two are often compared, not only for their originality and productivity, but also for their ability to make sidemen play better than they did for other leaders and to guide the improvisations of those men so that their solos fitted logically into an overall pattern. Morton created music that is marvelous in its variety. Marches, rags, stomps, chamber jazz, blues, and interesting to listen to repeatedly. Into every three-minute recording, he crammed such incredible arrays of jazz that new nuances often emerged with each replaying. Jelly Roll was very sensitive about what people thought of him and was embittered in his later years when he was considered as an old-fashioned has-been. But he brought many of his troubles on himself. He had a tremendous ego that demanded constant applause from himself if no other source was available. He draped his slim figure in expensive suits, drove a car he said was so long he had to go to Central Park to turn around and adorned himself with diamonds, including one set in a front tooth. As further proof of affluence in good times and bad, he carried around a thousand dollar bill if you accuse jelly of being broke saxophonist joe garland recalled he would flash the g note and laugh in your face on the other hand trombonist wilbert paris who was a fellow lodger with him in a Harlem boarding house found him sensitive and a gentleman he never smoked seldom drank and remained attached through though distantly to his cath- catholic faith much of this exceptional Man's story might have died with him had he not attracted the attention of Alan Lomax, assistant in charge of the Archive of American Folk Song at the Library of Congress. Lomax knew little of jazz, but he had heard that Morton, then playing piano in a dingy Washington, D.C. nightclub, 1938, had good stories to tell about early days in New Orleans. He invited Jelly Roll to drop in and spin a few yarns, and perhaps play some old tunes on the piano. On May 21, 1938, Mr. Jelly Roll, grandly drove his huge black Lincoln to the Library of Congress Coolidge Auditorium for the first and almost daily afternoon sessions that continued for the next five weeks and that yielded one of the most extraordinary documents in the history of American music. Mm-hmm. Seated at a concert grand amid the stonily staring bus of classical masters, the man who seemed to have crammed two lifetimes into 50 years began lovingly to unfold the past in words and music. As a consequence, we know a great deal about Morton, but since most of it came from Jelly Roll himself, there is much elaboration. My folks, he recounted We're in the city of New Orleans long before the Louisiana Purchase, and all my folks came directly from the shores of France. Time and again, in his varying accounts of his ancestry, Morton stressed the French origins of his light-skinned Creole family. He spoke of his family's high standards of behavior and culture. Actually, they were mostly artisans and domestic servants. Jelly Roll's father, Ferdinand P. Lamont, was a construction man. He married Louise Monette, a creole girl, so fair she could almost always pass, Morton remembered. Young Ferdy was still small when his mother, fed up with her husband's wild ways, left and took up with Willie Morton, a hotel porter, whose name the boy adopted. My real name is Ferdinand Lamont, he told Lomax I changed it for business reasons when I started traveling. I didn't want to be called Frenchy. Morton told of how he and his chums made daring forays into the red light district of fabled Storyville. Violence was never far from the surface. Morton took to toting a gun at an early age. He once accidentally wounded a friend with it, but apparently never fired a shot in anger. But what Morton mostly recalled was music. Music everywhere. Bands accompanied the parades and funerals. Brothels and honky-tonks had their pianists, and there were classical concerts in the French opera house. Morton took to music early, beating on a tin pan with two chair rungs as a baby, graduating to the harmonica, the Jews hop, and the guitar. He was, he said, considered among the best guitarists around by the time he was seven. He also sang in a juvenile quartet whose members scouted avidly for reports of deaths so that they could entertain at wakes. We specialized in spirituals, he said. A recital at the opera house first interested Morton in the piano, and at ten he switched from the guitar to the piano and began taking lessons. Morton's childhood ended when he was about 14. That year, his mother, already widowed, died, leaving the two little Morton girls, Ferdy's half-sisters, in the care of their great-grandmother. Morton was taken in by an uncle in whose barbershop he worked for 25 cents a week plus shine earnings and a promised suit for New Year's, which never materialized. And he went to work at the local Cooperage company, earning $2 a week for lining barrels. He soon received an offer to play piano in one of the sporting houses. Morton decided to keep his mode of employment from his folks and seemed to have a great deal of trepidation about that kind of employment. But he began to make more money than he'd ever dreamed possible, and he began buying flashy clothes, which gave him away, and And he was summarily kicked out of the house. Morton, at 15, streetwise, but still just a kid, wept that Sunday night as he walked the streets because he had no idea how to go about renting a room. The following morning, he took a train to Biloxi, Mississippi, and spent the next two years working as a pianist in Biloxi. Then in 1902, because he had heard a rumor about a lynching, because of its association with a white prostitute, Matty Bailey, he returned to New Orleans. That was in 1902, the year he later claimed to have have invented jazz. Jazz was emerging all around Morton in those days, sprouting from the cornets of Buddy Bolden and Emmanuel Perez, the trombone of Frankie Doosen, and the clarinets of Alphonse Picou, Lorenzo Tio, and George Baquet. Understandably, the pianist held a special interest for him. By his own admission, he still had a great deal to learn as a musician. He did, however, consider himself superior to most of his colleagues, but not to Tony Jackson, the stocky, dark-skinned favorite of the best Storyville houses later to become famous as a composer of Pretty Baby. He was nine years Morton's senior and became the younger man's lifelong idol. Around the time of his return to New Orleans, Morton began to reveal a significant side of his musical talent. Composition. Composition. His first published tune, the Jelly Roll Blues, did not appear until 1915, but such compositions as Shreveport Stomp, and his most famous tune, King Porter Stomp, were written around 1902, supporting Morton's own contention that he was the pioneer jazz composer. It was also during this period that he got his first experience as a band leader, organizing pickup bands to play in parades. In 1907, Jelly Roll made a tour, first to Chicago, then to Texas, then to California, and then back to New Orleans. He was disappointed finding very little jazz played anywhere outside of his hometown. He went on the road again with a fellow named Jack the Bear and peddled a miracle cure for tuberculosis, actually a mixture of Coca-Cola and salt. And he plied his trade as a pool shark. In Memphis, Tennessee, he found that a fellow by the name of Benny Frenchy was thought of as the best in the whole state, on the piano. In a cutting contest, Jelly Roll seated himself at the piano and treated the Benny French fans to a version of Tony Jackson's Naked Dance. After that he boasted Beale Street belonged to me. Certainly Morton seems to have found greater serious acceptance in Memphis than anywhere else outside of New Orleans. That year, nineteen eight, he was hired to play at the Savoy Theater possibly his first legitimate engagement as a musician. And he became a member of a Memphis-based vaudeville show. Vaudeville, according to Morton, gave him the nickname that stuck with him for the rest of his life. During a comedy skit with Sammy Russell, a blackface comedian, Morton asked Russell his name. Sweet Papa Cream Puff, right out of the bakery shop. Russell said. Since that got a laugh, Morton responded in kind, and he announced that he was Sweet Papa Jelly Roll. Morton appeared in Vaudeville off and on into the 1920s in various roles. Accompanist, piano soloist, blackface comedian. Singer Ida Cox recalled Morton as being a good-looking, light-skinned boy who accompanied her at the eighty. one theater on Decatur Street in Atlanta. But except for such occasional sightings, it is virtually impossible to pinpoint Morton's whereabouts for the years from 1908 to 1917. Landing for a spell in St. Louis, he sought employment in the German section of town where he tried to make a group of local musicians sound acceptable, playing his music, a process that may have marked the beginning of the jazz Arrangement. These were not hot jazz men, Lomax quotes Morton as saying, but they were Negroes and they could read. They didn't play to suit me, but I told them if they played what I put down on paper, they would be playing exactly what I wanted. Then I arranged all the popular tunes of that time. Next stop was back to Chicago, giving it another try after his initial disappointment a few years earlier. The elite number two was a chicago night spot he took over the entertainment and a five-piece band and they did a capacity business but in 1916 morton decided to hit the road again but he left behind some of the earliest permanent evidences of his genius a number of piano roll recordings including jelly roll blues which that year had become his first published tune he accepted a job at the Cadillac Cafe in Los Angeles. After a successful turn at the Cadillac and a couple of other Los Angeles night spots, and having caught up with an old friend named Anita Gonzalez, he opened a gambling club of his own, and he and Anita's brother, banjo player Bill Johnson, decided to bring in a real New Orleans band cornetist Buddy Pettit, trombonist Frankie Dusen, clarinetist Wade Whaley. And this little band prospered for quite some time until Jelly Roll got bored, left Anita, and started traveling again. And he finally ended up in, again in Chicago. In Chicago in the spring of 1923, Morton found significant changes in the city's nightlife Some of New Orleans greatest musicians were providing hot sounds ideally suited to the new decade's lifestyle. Prohibition was on and a proliferation of clandestine watering holes supplied by the newly rich racketeers provided employment for musicians. And there was a beginning of the record industry, which had discovered a lucrative new market for the music it had its origins in New Orleans. Morton's musical career was about to take off. In the next quarter century, he would stamp his name indelibly on the history of jazz. On July the 17th of 1923, he spent two days at the Jeanette Recording Studios in Richmond, Indiana, recording solo performances of six of his own tunes, and he appeared as pianist with the New Orleans... Rhythm Kings, probably the first mixed group to record. Paul Maris on cornet, George Brunis, trombone, Leon Rapola, clarinet, Jack Pettis on C Melody Sax, Glenn Scoville, alto and tenor, Don Murray, clarinet, Jelly Roll Morton piano, Bob Gillette, banjo, Chink Martin, tuba, and Ben Pollock, drums, doing one of Jelly Roll's originals entitled "Mr. Jelly Lord." You will hear a duet between Jelly Roll and clarinetist Leon Rapolo, and Jelly Roll's influences all over this record. That same session on July 17, 1923, Shelley Roll recorded a piano solo of his famous King Porter Stomp. studios in Richmond, Indiana, to record one of his compositions entitled Grandpa's
0: heard in this episode of jazz in the public domain just a brief sampling of the uh, masterpieces and classics that are now in the public domain this year from the uh, classic year of 1923 and we will return with more of this treasure trove thank you for listening